would this morning turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We are still in Ephesians, so Ephesians will be there for a while, so just buckle up. Um, but Ephesians chapter 1 today. Today's message um, is the pledge of God. Uh, there is sermon notes available in the back if you would like something to take notes on. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, there's both an adult version and a child version if you'd like one. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and the message today is the pledge of God. I think in today's world, especially in American evangelicalism, uh, one of the most pervasive issues uh, for a lot of people who profess Christ is an assurance of their salvation. I think it's probably one of the most common questions that comes up in people's minds. Uh, it's the idea of, am I really saved? Do I really know? How can I really know? Is there something I'm supposed to point to? What am I supposed to look at? What, what am I going to do to know for a fact that I am saved? And the, the beautiful thing about Ephesians, uh, all of Scripture, but especially this passage in Ephesians, is that we get to rest in the confidence of God himself. Um, I am going to attempt from this passage to answer the question, can I truly know that I'm saved? Uh, because the answer is yes. And I want to encourage you in the fact that you can truly know that you are a follower of Christ without looking to how good you are, without looking to how many times you go to church, without looking to how often you read your Bible. Um, not that any of those things are bad, so please don't hear me say that those things are bad. But the point of the message, the point of this passage, is that the pledge of God is what we put our faith in. The faithfulness of an of a all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, faithful God is where we put our confidence for our salvation and our assurance. It's not in ourselves. So that's going to be our goal today as we dig into this particular passage. So if you would, stand with me. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to stand in honor of the reading of the one who gave us this word. We're going to read verses 11 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. It reads, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you for our assurance being in you and the never-failing God. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a body to worship you in both spirit and in truth. I pray that your spirit would work inside of us, uh, that we would understand your word that is being preached, uh, that we would gather around the table as a body in anticipation of your coming that you have promised to us by your pledge. We glorify you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So at the top of your sermon notes, if you have it, the theme of the book, it's on the screen as well. Um, but it is the glory of God seen in making man new creatures in Christ, the indicative of what Christ did, and the imperative that we follow through his work in us by his spirit. And if you notice, the words I left out this time are all focused on what we're going to focus on today, Christ 
and his spirit. Everything that we understand about our salvation, everything that we do, everything that we are as believers is summed up in him. And that's the first point this morning um, is we're going to talk about the inheritance of God in verse 11. The inheritance of God. And as we draw our attention to verse 11, the first phrase that Paul writes here is in him. We've already heard in him earlier in verse 7, but he reuses that same phrase. We're going to see it a couple times today. But in him, we have to know that the him, as we talked about last week, we need to know where the, the pronoun is coming from. If you back up, just like we did last week, and keep going back, verse 10, it says, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, in him, and then he reiterates, in him we also. So we know that the him is Christ, in him. So everything that Paul is going to say after this is to be viewed as being in Christ. The next passage here, we're going to camp a little bit of time, the next few words here, we also have been made an inheritance. Now, some of you may have an ESV, some of you may have a New American Standard that translates this a little differently than what I just read. The correct interpretation from the original language is not the idea that we have been made an inheritance, but that we are actually an inheritance given to Christ. The original language here, there's a, a word in the Greek that is used. This is the only spot in the entire New Testament that this word is used. And it's a word used for the casting of lots or the, the specific choice. And that points us back to the Old Testament. If you guys remember in the Old Testament, God chose different tribes or different people by using what? A casting of lots, right? So he would say cast the lots. If you remember Job on the boat. He said, cast lots for who it is, and that the lot fell to Job, and we know that's God's sovereignty. He would have the Israelites cast lots to figure out um, who may have sinned or who was supposed to do something. Uh, that idea of casting lots here in the original language put where it is with the predestined idea of being in Christ. The accurate, the most accurate translation I'm convinced is we also have been made an inheritance. We have been made an inheritance to Christ. Now, the wording in the inheritance later on that we're going to talk about, so just put this in the back of your mind, but verse 14 also talks about us receiving an inheritance. And that's why I'm convinced that the wording here is because it's different here in verse 11 than it is in verse 14. So we know that this idea of inheritance is the fact that we, as believers, have been selected by God, predestined as the elect, and given to the beloved, the Son of God, the Beloved of God, Christ, as a gift, as an inheritance that he then redeems unto himself by his work to his own glory. Now, I want us to camp on that for just a minute. So I've broken down the technical side. I've broken down the language. Here's why this is what it means. But think about the impact that that should have on our lives. Our redemption our salvation, our being bought, that's what redemption means, being purchased out of sin. Redemption in the Old Testament was the idea of someone redeeming someone or paying the price to redeem them out of slavery. So God redeemed us out of slavery through the work of Christ 
as an inheritance to Christ so that we would then turn and give him praise and glory throughout all eternity. That is the end. That is the, the end all. That is the full goal of God in his redemptive plan is to take us, give us to Christ who redeems us, applies that redemption to us by his spirit, and then we spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity giving glory to Christ. Think of the gift that that is from God the Father to God the Son. Our redemption is an act of God for his own glory. It is not because there's worth in us. We have intrinsic value because we're made in the image of God, but we do not have worth enough to sacrifice that, to sacrifice the Son of God. God sacrificed himself through the Son to redeem us for his own glory. We need to understand the purpose of our redemption to understand our assurance because God would not give a gift to his son that could then be lost. God would not give a gift to his son that would not ultimately bring him glory. If we were to profess Christ and then that turned around and we then rejected Christ, does that bring him glory? No. If we could profess Christ, as some would say, and then lose your salvation later on, is that God failing to give an inheritance that Christ can redeem for his own glory? That's a failure on God's part if we are not ultimately saved. If we were to turn our eyes away from him, that's a failure on God's part, according to this passage, because he has given us as an inheritance to God, or to Jesus, excuse me, for his own glory. So a big part of our assurance is the fact that God cannot fail. He gave us as a gift to his son. Think about that. Meditate on that. We are inheritance given to Christ. And Christ himself says these types of things as well. Turn to John chapter 17, if you will. There's many, paid, there's many places that we can go throughout scripture that would elaborate on the fact that we are given to the son by the father and that he would ultimately redeem them back. But let's turn to John chapter 17 because there's a couple of places here that I want us to see together that Christ himself gives this same excuse me, this same idea. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. It says, I have manifested your name to the men, this is Christ speaking, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now some would say, well, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, or about the disciples. Well, it's true, as he's beginning this, he's talking to the disciples, but if you jump down to verse 20 and verse 21 of that same chapter, so John 17, verse 20 and 21, it reads, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So Christ does begin this, this uh, message, this, this prayer, this um, idea of, of God giving people to him as to the disciples specifically. So you, you remember Christ chose the disciples, right? So he did in fact choose the 12. But as he gets down to the bottom 
of chapter 6, in verse 20 and 21, he comes back and says, this is not just for the disciples, this is actually for everyone who would believe according to their word. Who started the church? Who did God use to start the church? The apostles. So everyone who believes after that fact are those whom Christ is preaching. So that means the entirety of the universal church. Everyone who would put their faith in Christ is, is Jesus is saying, everyone who put their faith in me is given to me by God for my glory and redemption. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And unless we think that's the only place, let me show you one other place. There's more that you can research. But turn to John chapter 6, so back a few pages. John chapter 6 and verse 65. So in John 6, 65, he's speaking again to the disciples, and he's going to say this time, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The Father is who gives the elect to the Son in order to redeem. So I wanted to establish the fact that Christ himself teaches. This is something coming from the Son of God himself. Not that there's any more authority or less authority of, of Paul's words, but I want to show you it's not only taught by Paul, but it was taught by Christ while he was here as well. God gave the elect to the Son in order to redeem. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thought. There's, that is something that should make you wake up in the morning and go, I am a gift to the Son of God. I am redeemed to the, to the Son's glory, and God does not fail in his gifting to the Son. I have assurance in him. And the verse also says that this is not something that happened flippantly. This is something having been predestined. So the next few words, the next three words, so this inheritance in Christ is has been predestined. This is something that God planned. And we're going to see here in a moment, but we're going to see that this is something that God had planned and laid out before the foundation of the world itself. Our assurance is not in ourselves. Our assurance is not in our circumstances. Our assurance is not in our emotions. Our assurance is in Christ. Our assurance is in the pledge of God. Our assurance is in the seal of the Spirit upon us. These are all ideas that this passage brings forth that we're going to look at today. Now, how does that impact our lives, though? If I haven't made it clear so far, the application of this text is rest in Christ. The application of this first point of being an inheritance of God is that we rest in Christ. We focus on his mercy. We focus our praise on the glorification of him who saved us. And we understand that our sole purpose as believers is to glorify Christ. That is our sole purpose. Nothing else matters. That is how we are to live our lives. We are to live our lives in full assurance that God redeemed us by giving us to the Son who paid our penalty for our sins so that we would spend the rest of our lives glorifying him. Rest in that every day. Rest in that every hour. Rest in that every minute. Because our lives on this earth, we quickly forget those truths. We quickly lay aside the fact that God doesn't fail and that we are a gift to the Son. We quickly lay aside the fact that our goal is to glorify God. How many people have ever struggled with knowing God's will? I have. I've heard it asked of me. How do I know God's will? Are you glorifying him? 
I know that sounds so simplistic, but are you glorifying God? Do you love the Lord with all of yourself? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are the, the, the things that you're looking to do, is that what you're doing? Okay, great. You're in the will of God. And you may sound like that's, that's well, it's just, just too easy. That's, that's what we're commanded to do in the covenant of grace, to love the Lord our God with all of ourselves and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's, that's what we are to do. So if you can say this particular action or this particular idea puts me in the back seat and puts God in, up to, to, to be glorified, that's what we need to do. That's the will of God. So rest in what Christ has done. Number two. Number two. Counsel of God. The counsel of God. So we're going to look at the next section of verse 11 and then through verse 12. So the counsel of God. Let's pick up in, uh, halfway through verse 11. So we talked about it being predestined. Now we look at according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So we know that he, we've been predestined. And I mentioned a moment ago that it's according to the will of God. I want to draw your attention back just a few verses. We talked about them briefly last week, but I want to drive them home a little bit better. Verse 8, it talks about, if you look up just a little bit, it reads, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. And now he's coming back, Paul is circling back to say, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. God... Everything that we're reading, everything that we're understanding about redemption, everything that Paul is writing to us about our assurance, about our redemption, about our salvation, everything comes from the absolute perfect wisdom and understanding of God through the counsel of his own will. This predestination, this counsel of, of the will that we're talking about is really a beautiful thing that you can see glimpses of throughout Scripture. I want to draw your attention to 1, Genesis 1, 26. You don't have to turn there. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we see a glimpse of the divine counsel. Now, that phrase, before we read that passage, that phrase has a lot of baggage that's been added onto it, especially in the recent decade or so. And there's this idea that the counsel of God is not the Trinity. I'm going to argue that the counsel of God is the inner Trinitarian working. Okay, The counsel of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being agreed in will together to counsel together according to their wisdom, perfect wisdom and understanding to then act out that plan of redemption. But there are those who would say that the divine counsel is in fact this idea of God and all of his senior ranking angels or God um, and all of the heavenly hosts. Um, there's nothing in scripture that points to that. The arguments for those are are out extra biblical, they're outside of the Bible. So I want to make sure and clarify very, very carefully the counsel of the will of God, the divine counsel, is the inter-Trinitarian work. So that's the fancy phrase for the, the Trinity talking amongst themselves. Okay? So the Trinity working amongst themselves, having agreed upon will, acts out their will in history. So Genesis 1:26 reads: Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So the us making man in our image, according to our likeness, is the idea of the Trinity talking amongst itself to make man in the image of God himself. Now, again, I'm going to show that this divine counsel is in fact God amongst himself because are we made in the image of angels? No. We can see multiple points throughout scripture where in fact angels came, scared someone, the someone began to worship, and the angel said, no, do not, do not worship us, worship God alone. They separate themselves out from God. We are not made in the image of man, we are made in the imago dei, or a fancy term for the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are not made in the council of angels and God. We are made, scripture very clearly says, in the image of God. So this divine counsel is what gave us the covenant of redemption, the plan of salvation, the pactum salutis, if you want the Latin. So this plan of redemption, I mentioned it earlier, but I want to really make sure it's defined for us very, very well here. Every human being needs to be redeemed or they will suffer the wrath of God. Now, when we think of redemption, what does that mean from a biblical perspective? Well, we sometimes say salvation. Redemption, from a biblical perspective, is the idea of paying the penalty for someone else to be set free, to be redeemed, to be brought home. This idea was seen in the slave trade that was very, very common uh, in the time of Scripture. And the idea of redemption actually started with someone paying the cost. Often um, bond slaves were those who went into debt too much to someone else, and they had to become someone's slave to pay off their debt. So we as human beings are in debt to the law or the debt to the, the, the sin nature. We are slaves to sin, and Christ redeems us by paying our penalty, by taking our wrath, and bringing us to himself, redeeming us to himself, that we are no longer slaves to sin. So that is the idea of redemption. It's not just, oh, you're forgiven. It is much, much more than that. So the idea of redemption here is extremely important because this plan of redemption is by the counsel of the Trinitarian Godhead, the thrice holy God counseled amongst himself to the end, look at verse 12, to the end, or for the outcome. So in verse 12, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now I want to draw your attention to some wording here. First of all, to the end. So that means to the full fulfillment, to the outcome. So the outcome that we would have that God has counseled among himself to predestine in Christ so that we would be an inheritance to the Son is for the praise of his glory. But Paul makes an interesting point here, and he changes the wording. You notice that he's go, he went from writing a we with him included to saying that we who first hoped in Christ, and then in verse 13 he uses you. So now he's changed the tense of who he's talking about. So he says, we have hoped first in Christ, and you have also hoped. And what he's talking about 
is the Jews who hoped in Christ first. Who were the first people to hope in the Redeemer coming? Those who were told that the Redeemer would be coming. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the 12 tribes, all the prophets pointing to the coming of Christ. The Gentiles is the you. So Paul is now instructing, this is not just for Jews. This inheritance, this divine counsel, the end of, of all of this being the glory of Christ is for both Jew and Gentile. It has impacted all nations. All nations. To the praise of the glory of God. It's wildly important that we understand there is no division in the gospel. The redemption is not for the Jew only, it is also for the Gentile. It is not for the rich only or the poor only, it is for every person who has been elected before the foundation of the world, who has been predestined to be the inheritance to Christ from all eternity. Think about that for just a minute. I'm using a lot of big words and I'm talking rather quickly, but what I really want to make sure you're understanding, this idea, this thought process that God redeems people, not races, there, there's a human race, redeems people to himself for the end all outcome of glorifying Christ. We get to participate in the glorification of the Son of God by grace alone. And I know I've set up a lot of arguments and we've talked about the Greek and we've looked at different verses. Those are fantastic things. Chew on those. But walk away from this sermon today knowing that by grace we are given to the Son of God as an inheritance to glorify Him for all eternity. That cannot fail. That's where your assurance goes. That's what you look to when you rise up in the morning and go, man, I had a rough day of sinning yesterday. Am I even saved? When Satan gets you halfway through the day in your car or on lunch break or on your car ride home or you lost your temper at your kids again today. And you look at it and you go, there's, there's just, there's no way. Because if I was really saved, I wouldn't be doing these things. And you don't look at what you're doing. You look at what God said he would do in you. That's what you look at. That's the beautiful picture. Because we hope in Christ. The apostles, the Jews, especially the apostles, especially. The only thing, if you read the epistles, the only thing they talk about, the only thing Paul talks about, the only thing Peter talks about is Christ. Hope in Christ. That's all they had. They had everything on that. Paul hid his entire ministry. He said, all I preach is Christ and him crucified. That's all I want you to understand. Our hope is in Christ. And the hope here in Christ, the real hope in this life, the word used to describe that is, again, the only time that word is used in the Greek in the entire New Testament. Paul is trying to make a point. He's using words that aren't used anywhere else. He's using ideas that are not put in this particular manner anywhere else to bring us to a point of glorifying Christ for what he has done for us. As I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of a song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. Um, it's by uh, Matt Boswell and, and the Gettys. I'm going to read it. Nobody wants me to sing it. But I'm going to read a small portion of it. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? 
what comes apart from his command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand. O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Our hope in everything that occurs in this life falls squarely in him. And that's why Paul continues to use that phrase, in him. In all of this, and you're going to hear me beat a dead horse here, and that's okay because Paul does, all of this is to the glory of Christ. All of this is to the glory of God. Our hope is in Christ so that we rest in him and give him our praise and glory because that's where our confidence is. Our hope is in Christ. And that's what I want you guys to think about. That's the application here. Our hope is not in the economy. Our hope is not in how many hours we spend reading the scriptures. Our hope is not in the American government. Our hope is not in any government. Our hope is not in principalities or powers of the air. That's becoming very prevalent in our, in our time. Paganism is having a resurgence like you would not believe. North paganism. There is this idea that we have to find something to put our hope in, even if it's ourselves. Even if you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and the world says live and follow your heart, that's where you put your hope. None of that is where our hope is found as believers. Our hope is in Christ. Because according to the divine counsel of a holy God, who set this in motion and predestined everything before the world even went into place, he said, this is the way things will be. And we have confidence in that. We have confidence in Christ. Number three. Number three, the seal of God. The seal of God. So we're going to pick up in verse 13 again, and we're going to see this same phrase. Paul has used this phrase in him now in verse 7, in verse 11, and we're going to see it here again in verse 13. It says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In him, you also. So we've already talked about the difference between the Jew and the Gentile and the idea that Paul would have here, especially writing to the Ephesians, who would have a lot of uh, the, the pagan worship there that we talked about in the introduction to this book. He says, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth. So he equates the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. And what he comes down to say is we know from other passages in him, the word of truth, in him, Christ, the gospel of your salvation. What is the gospel? If you were to define the gospel, if someone walked up to you on the street, could you define the gospel? Could you say specifically what the good news? Because the gospel is simply a, a word that means good news. Could you accurately depict what the gospel is? Because there's a lot of people that would start with, well, the gospel is the there's ten commandments that we have to follow, and there's things that we have to do, and that is not the gospel. The gospel does not begin at the law. The law is extremely good at what it's designed to do, which is tell us how bad we are. 
But that is not the gospel. The word of truth is, in fact, Christ. If I ever ask you what the gospel is and you just simply answer Jesus Christ, I will accept that all day long. But a more elaborate definition of gospel is the good news of Christ living a perfect life on this earth as a fully God, fully man, human being, who took the punishment of our sin upon himself for three hours on a tree, as the prophet said he would, according to the scriptures, died according to the scriptures, and raised again the third day, and ascended to heaven according to the scriptures. That is the gospel message. It is the good news of Christ. But that good news is wrapped up completely in him. And that's what Paul is getting at. He uses in him over and over because everything he's arguing, our salvation, God's wisdom and insight being revealed to us, the riches of his grace, our inheritance as being an inheritance to Christ, our inheritance that we will receive, which we'll get to in a minute, our redemption, God possessing us, everything that he has said for the last multiple verses has been in him. In Christ. Because Paul is building a case that everything, the fullness of the times, the end of every, everything we've talked about for the last four weeks in this opening section of Ephesians is about Christ. And Paul doesn't just write here. Turn with me if you want to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 20, 22, excuse me, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 22. Because Paul words it slightly different for the Colossians, but it still is just as applicable, and it is the same idea that he's giving to the Ephesian churches. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22 reads, who is the image of the invisible God? So this who, if you back up a couple of verses, is the Son, is Christ. So Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, now, though you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul goes through and gives this amazing description of Christ. There is no other way to say in, in, in that language and in that time, there is no other way to say that he is before all things, above all things, in all things, all things are through him. There is simply no other way for Paul to describe it. He hits every curvature of the human makeup for us to understand that everything about our entire existence is Christ. 
And then he says, as preeminent as Christ is, that's the idea of the preeminence of Christ. That's the idea that he is above all, in all, through all. He's the firstborn, first raised from the dead, all these things. And then Paul says, look at it in verse 21 and 22, that we were formerly enemies. And yet this preeminent being took our wrath from God upon himself. Think about that. Your assurance doesn't lie in what you do. Your assurance lies in the preeminent Christ giving himself for you and for me. That is what Paul is saying. He reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death, the flesh that was torn from his back, the flesh that was pierced with the nails, the flesh that was beaten and spit upon and crown shoved into. That is who we put our assurance in. Don't you dare cheapen what Christ did by thinking you can make it on your own. That is not where your assurance goes. That is not what it's about. The word of truth that Paul is talking about back in Ephesians, the detail in Colossians, that's what he's talking about. The gospel of your salvation is the good news of the preeminent Christ taking for you what you can never bear on your own so that you would be reconciled to a holy God. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He says himself in John 14, 6. John 14, 6 reads, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the only way. It is the only way to be reconciled to God. Works cannot reconcile you to God. Buddha cannot reconcile you to God. The God of Islam cannot reconcile you to God. Joseph Smith, the starter, the one who started Mormonism, cannot reconcile you to God. Charles Taze Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witnesses, cannot reconcile you to God. Mary Baker Eddy, who started the Christian Scientists, cannot reconcile you to God. L. Ron Hubbard, who started Scientology, cannot reconcile. Do you get where I'm going with this? I could, I could do this for a while. There is no one else besides Christ himself. The preeminent Christ gave himself. That is where your assurance lies. That is where we look. And God tells us why we look to that. Because our belief, which is a gift from God, our belief, having also believed you were sealed in him, there it is again, in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now think about this for just a second. The word seal here is not the large animal that makes weird noises in the water. Okay? The seal here is the idea of a kingly promise. So when you think about a seal, has anybody ever seen how kings used to have rings, signet rings, or possibly a signet stamp? And they would melt wax and they would make a decree and then they'd either seal it at the bottom corner or they would roll it up and seal it to only be opened by those who it was intended to be given to. And that seal was the absolute promise guarantee that that king would bring forth what was to happen inside that edict. That is how, for example, we would say he signed his name to it. Right? He put his initials on it. He signed his name. This was his guarantee that he would buy this house for X number of dollars a month for X number of years. 
That's the idea of God sealing us with the Holy Spirit. The promise that we have from God that he would fulfill in Christ our salvation based at the moment of our belief. So when the Spirit works in us and regenerates us and gives us that gift of faith and we believe on Christ, we are immediately at that moment stamped with the seal of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us right at that moment. That is where our salvation lies. That's where our, uh, that's where our uh, assurance lies. Now, this does not happen at baptism, but baptism is a beautiful picture that has been laid out for us in Scripture to give us the picture of being sealed in the Spirit. When we think about Jesus having been baptized, the Spirit descended on him, correct? We get the idea of baptism being buried with Christ and raised to newness, to newness of life. The baptism is a beautiful picture, an image, a shadow of what Christ did, us being united with him in his death. Think about that next time we get to celebrate baptism as a body. I'm looking forward to the first time we get to do that, whenever that may be. But think about that imagery that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit with the image of baptism, putting us under the water and bringing us back out. This seal is the very foundation. This is the, what I want you to take away from this. And you're, again, every application almost sounds the same because Paul, over and over again through this passage, gets us to look at Christ for what he has done and what he will do. The Spirit is the mark of his promise. He has placed his mark upon us. It is completely unique and only his. That was the idea of the seal of the the foreign times of the kings, or the, the times of history, excuse me, of kings, every seal that a king had was extremely unique to him. You knew what king put that seal on there because he designed it and he used that himself. Christ, God, excuse me, God sent the, the spirit of, of himself to us, a unique mark to seal us to himself that we can know his promise to us to bring us to glorification, to live with him for eternity, eternity will come to pass. It will come to pass. Rest in that. Look to that seal. Don't look to your works. Look to the Spirit. The Spirit indwells you and changes you. You will know when the Spirit has indwelt you. It's not a speaking in tongues. It's not this idea of all the healings that you can do or being knocked down by the Holy Spirit or Benny Hinn or whoever does those kinds of things these days. The idea is the Spirit indwelling in you to change you into the image of Christ. Number four, the pledge of God. The pledge of God. So we've already talked about a seal, but as if the seal wasn't enough, Paul goes on by the inspiration of the Spirit to tell us that God pledges as well. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this is where we talk about our inheritance. We have a pledge of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? So we talked about us being an inheritance given to Christ, but what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is that we get to live with God for eternity, glorifying him in the new heavens and the new earth. Our salvation being part of that. We could not do that were we not redeemed. That's what Paul says. Our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession. So we've already talked about how God possesses those whom he's called. 
We are God's possession. We saw Christ reference it. We see Paul reference it here. We are God's possession. The elect are his. And he takes that possession and he redeems it. And he gives that possession as if our redemption wasn't enough. We are given an inheritance that we will carry throughout eternity by being fully glorified and purged completely of our sin on the day that he returns. You guys remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fulfillment of the times, the end times of when Christ will return. But this word pledge means even more than the seal. It's a different idea of the seal. The term pledge here is earnest, a down payment. The idea here communicating in the original language is literally a down payment on our inheritance that we will receive. Did you know that God paid a down payment for you? He gave earnest money. Anybody ever purchased a home before? That's about the only time this idea of earnest is ever used in, in our American idea of, of civilization, if you will. The only time earnest is used in our culture is if you're really excited about, for those who haven't bought a house yet, you teenagers, if you buy a house and you're really excited about it and there's a bunch of people that want that same house to make sure that your offer is looked at first, you give what's called earnest money. It's a non-refundable, you don't get it back. I'm going to give $5,000 this homeowner right now. Here's a check to make sure that they know I am absolutely dead serious about buying this house. This house will be mine. That is the exact idea that Paul uses. That's what this word means, the word pledge. God earnestly gave us his pledge, his earnest money, to promise us that we will be redeemed as his possession for our own inheritance to live eternally with him. So let me ask you again, where does your assurance lie? If it was anywhere else before Christ, besides Christ before this message, I pray that the Spirit works in you to show you it is not in us, it is in God. It is the seal of God, the Holy Spirit. It is the pledge of God, the earnest that he gives us, the, the down payment for our salvation by his grace alone, to the good praise of his glory alone, do we see our redemption coming forth. That is where your assurance lies. That is what we get to partake in. That is what by grace, this eternal grace that we do not deserve that God gives us of himself by his own good pleasure, for his own good will, for his glory alone, have we received that. Look to Christ. Don't look to anything else. Look to Christ. God pledged and promised. The wording here is extremely important. Paul is making a point. In him, he says it three or four times just in the last few verses. And I'm going to beat the dead horse that he did. It is in Christ. The text said it. I get to say it over and over again, right? The text says it over and again. It's in him. It's in Christ. Your assurance is in him. Tell each other that every single day. Married couples, tell each other that every single day. Parents, tell your kids every day. Stop looking to other things. It is Christ. Bring them back to this passage and go, look. God gave a down payment for you and for me as believers. He pledges earnestly that we will see the eternity that he has promised. God does not fail. Do you think there's a reason why scripture, why God in his holy word 
goes out of his way to prove his faithfulness over and over and over and over again. You can't, you can't open a psalm just about without seeing the faithfulness of God proclaimed. Any psalm. You look at over and over the covenants of Abraham, the, the conversations with Isaac. What does he point back to? His faithfulness for delivering them from Egypt. Because he said he would and he did. So he can point back and go, see, I'm faithful. All throughout the prophets, he gets to point to, look, I'm faithful. Over and over again, I'm faithful when you're not. Do you think there's a reason for that? Because our salvation is based on him and not ourselves. So we get to fully rely 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt to the, to the, on the faithfulness of a never-failing, perfect, holy God who used his perfect wisdom and insight to do all of this. Is anybody's heads ready to explode yet? At the magnitude of those thoughts, at the magnitude of that, and that's what drives us to praise him. Spurgeon, one of my favorite theologians of all time, he says this, this faithfulness of God is the foundation and cornerstone of our hope of final perseverance. The saints shall persevere in holiness because God perseveres in grace. He perseveres to bless, and their believers persevere in being blessed. He continues to keep his people, and there they continue to keep his commandments. Everything about the Christian life, about perseverance, is because of God. His grace, his faithfulness, we are only here because he is faithful to us. Think about the redemption that we have. Think about the, the, the inheritance that we've been promised all for his glory. All for the praise of his glory. Verse 14 ends this idea because next week Paul's going to start changing his is um, is the way he's speaking about these things just ever so slightly. So he sums up this thought process here to the praise of his glory. Everything that he has summed up through the last 14 verses that we have all walked together through, he sums up in his glory, for his glory, the praise of his glory. Now, I want to apply this last section here, the pledge of God, the earnest money that we have, the earnest, the down payment that he has made for our redemption. I want to apply it in this way. Because I think in our day and time, as things continue to seem to get worse, does our culture not seem to be getting worse day by day? Does the world as a whole seem to be plummeting and spiraling, spiraling towards a war that we're never going to get away from or the economic collapse that seems... Like it's been predicted, we're going to be worse than the Great Depression. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a problem. I'm not trying to say anything bad. But what I am saying, we as human beings are facing a time where I think that things will get pretty bad pretty quickly. It's my opinion. If nothing else, the church in America is facing an unprecedented, unexperienced time of persecution. The true believers will be persecuted. I fully believe in the next ten to twenty years. It's my opinion. I'm not a prophet. This is just Josh saying. Okay. But in all of that, where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? Is it in yourself? Is it in your savings account? Is it in the house that you have built? Is it the amount of kids that you have, the property you purchased, the animals you've made, the bomb shelter you put in? I don't know. Whatever you want to put, say to put your hope in. We have the pledge of God, the down payment of our salvation, that regardless of what we go through on this earth, 
we will be redeemed to him as the inheritance of him to his son to redeem our own inheritance and glorification on the new heavens and the new earth. That is where our hope lies. Believer, quit looking at the things around you. Quit looking at how bad your day is or how bad the news is or how bad anything else is. Look to Christ. We have the seal of the Spirit, the pledge of God upon us. Glory to God alone. We will be redeemed. You can take that to the bank. We will be fully redeemed when he comes again. John Stott says this, God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Let me read that again. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Our hope, pledge, and seal is in Christ alone, and we know that will never, ever fail. The pledge of God is perfect. So as we conclude today, Paul has now spoken throughout this passage about three key aspects of our salvation that we've observed over the last several weeks. He talks about adoption in verse 5. He talks about redemption in both verse 7 and 14. He talks about our inheritance today in verse 11. Do you think Paul is trying to get us to see something? I think it is. I'm going to beat the horse one more time. Salvation is in Christ alone. That's where our hope is. That's what Paul is saying. Salvation is in Christ alone. For his glory alone, our hope alone is in him. So this opening explanation of this book, we've seen this redemption, the preeminence of Christ, the praises included in this passage, and we get to see even more praises from Paul very soon as we move forward. All of this is in Christ. This is the already not yet of salvation. We have experienced salvation already, but we don't even understand. We can't fully comprehend what the red, the not yet is going to be. But what I can tell you is we have the perseverance and assurance of our salvation because of Christ and Christ alone. Rest in him. Rest in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we glorify you. We thank you that our hope is found in the never-failing Christ. That God, you have promised us through your pledge, your seal, the down payment of our salvation has been given to us. You have filled us with your spirit. We know this. We glorify you in all of this, Lord. The, the, the things taught in this passage over the last several weeks are mind-boggling, but it's the foundation that we need to have as a new church, a local body that will, Lord, our, our goal, our heart is to glorify you, to teach, to rest in Christ, to share the gospel, to unbeliever to find rest from their sins to the believer to find rest in christ alone and not the things that have been put on their shoulders we want to glorify you and point all of the world to you starting right here i pray you will help us to do that by beginning within us that we would rest in you in our daily lives that we would encourage our families in our daily lives to rest in you and what you've done that we would look to you for all things lord that is our plea I pray that you will work with your spirit in us to do that. In your holy name I pray. Amen.